Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast Investorpreneur, where investors meet entrepreneur. Here we talk about everything investing, everything entrepreneurism, and specifically real estate. It is innovation, perseverance, connection, execution that has built wealth for families all around the world. And of course, one of the most popular ways and most wealthy ways to build wealth is of course through real estate. Today I have the opportunity of having the founder and CEO of Urban Star, Dean Gorntz, based out of Calgary, Alberta, Canada to talk to us about real estate as a developer and how raising millions abroad was built for him, right? How did he do it? How was he able to build this empire out of Calgary, Alberta to people all around the world? My name is Peter Leung and I'm a global real estate investor. I'm also a private equity business and angel investor as well. You may have seen me in videos or working on stage with serial entrepreneurs and investors. It's also that ability to take on advisory roles to building, scaling, and replicating these businesses to his commercial valuation. Today, I have Dean. He's a local Calgarian. He's lived in Calgary all his life. And due to the nature of the market, the natural resources are a determining factor for real estate. I've lived in Vancouver most of my life. And real estate in Alberta was, was a little different from what I was used to. It's just a thrill and an honor to have Dean here on the show. Dean, welcome to Investorpreneur. Good morning, Peter, and thank you. That was quite the introduction. I appreciate it. No, you've got so much experience. You've started from the mortgage side. You've done sort of the background, but now you're at the forefront. You've done it all. You've seen the back end of things, and you're now seeing the development side. And so, Dean, first and foremost, for those who are understanding where you know Calgary is and you as a CEO of that company, can you share with us what was it like before, during, and now what do you see as a CEO developer in the real estate industry? In Calgary specifically, uh, Calgary, there's a report out there talking about resiliencies of cities when there's an adverse global or regional uh, negative effect on a city. How does that city get back to their feet? And uh, Calgary is actually voted the third most resilient city in the world, next to your hometown, Vancouver being one of them, Toronto the first. And down the road, you have larger cities like San Francisco, New York, uh, other cities that, you know, everyone would know about. Not a lot of people know about Calgary, Alberta. Yet Calgary, Alberta is one of the most prominent cities in the global map in terms of oil and gas resources, ranching, agriculture. We have one of the largest airport runways in the world. That is very strategically for the United States. That is a, a really big thing. Calgary is relied upon for economic resources for all of Canada. We have the third largest oil reserves in the world. So when you talk about real estate, you have to look at the underlying economics that allow for future development, that allow for the resiliency. Calgary has gone through a lot of ups and downs in terms of oil and gas going up and down. The market prior to COVID, prior to oil hitting $45 a barrel, where it was at a high of 110, boy, Calgary was sure booming. Then the market stays steady. During COVID, over the last six months, Calgary has been booming on the residential and commercial side. There's a real need for single family homes in Calgary, specifically to meet the new demand that is coming for oil in the world. Uh, there is a green push of solar panels, electric cars, but oil still is gonna re be required for any future economic recovery. They call uh, people in Calgary who are oil and gas CEOs the blue-eyed cheeks of Alberta, okay? Uh, they all live in Calgary and happen to live in the largest development that I have going on uh, called Bears Paw. A lot of people don't know that. So we're very bullish on Calgary. I am. I've acquired 
thousands and thousands of acres of land for future development. Currently, the markets, the quadrants of the city that I'm in, there's over 36,000 units available in all of Calgary, four different quadrants. I can go more into that later, but the quadrants that I'm focused on, there's only 700 units available. I'm coming forward with possibly 3,000 to 4,000 units over the next year and a half. Wow. The Urban Star group of companies that started 10 years ago with a small $5,000 investment on my, we've done a book value of over $110 million. We've raised over in Japan specifically. That was a tough market to break into. That $110 million, we believe will be about a three to $4 billion build out shortly. So in short 10 years, we've become one of the largest landholders and future developers in Calgary. So I'm very bullish. Our 4,000 investors are very bullish. And I'm really excited about what's happening in Calgary. And I'm a bit of a real estate geek, uh, nerd, if you will. I know everything there is to know about real estate. Why? Well, I, I better take that back. I was on the, everybody's very familiar with the end user, the homes, the commercial mm-hmm. buildings, the industrial structures that are out there. But uh, that, those are the physical characteristics of real estate that people recognize. The real stuff behind real estate is the acquisition of raw land prior and creating a conceptual plan for that piece of property that will turn into a master plan community with mixed uses of commercial, residential, light industrial that will enhance or develop a particular area of the city. That's where I get involved in, is right at the ground bones. And that's where our investors get involved in. That's where the greatest upside is. When you get to a physical building, now you're talking about really the appreciation of that building is actually depreciating. The value is in the land that is underneath those built structures. I used to be a private lender in Canada. I used to evaluate properties all the time. I'd raised $500 million in the private lending world, which is about a $15 billion industry. And I placed that money for other builders and developers. 10 years ago, I thought, I'm going to stop doing this. I'm going to start raising my own money and doing my own development. And in short 10 years, with the help of our investors who have trusted us and believe in us, and ultimately we've created a structure that makes sense to them where they own the land, they own the corporation. So they have an equity piece, a debt piece on the land and an equity piece in the corporation that are part of all of our future developments. And I can't wait for the next year because a lot of great stuff is going to happen. Dean, you've touched on such an amazing part of your story. And I know it's just the tip of that iceberg. And I just wanted to regurgitate this. For those who might have missed it, you're talking about coming from a private lender to starting your own organization with $5,000 to now raising over $100 million and then now getting to like in the future of a billion dollar project right? And all in the span of just about 10 years. What we want to understand is here, how did you go from that? How, when you started Urban Star, what was that vision? What did you see then? We really want to dig into what your vision was when you started this business. The vision was, I wanted to stop working for someone else. Okay. And, and altruistic, I'm not an altruistic person. I got into real estate to make money. Yes. And uh, there's nothing wrong with making money. My job is to wake up every single day to ensure that I make money for my investor group. But I just happen to have a passion for real estate. I grew up in it. My dad, native Indian reserves in Southern Alberta, my uncle taught me the benefit of putting his little money down and having ETBs carry land until you can pay for it. So I was a private lender with a very large company and I saw an opportunity to buy a large piece of land 
that had been sold over many times, but the timing just wasn't right for the development. I was able to put $5,000 down on, a four, on an $8 million property, get a two-year VTB on it at 0%. If I didn't raise the $8 million, the lady would have gotten the land back and I would have got my five grand back. The VTB, for those who are not in Vancouver, is a vendor take back. It's a vendor take back. The lady's name is Mrs. Trombley. She's a very well-known lady and a very generous lady in, in Alberta. And how I positioned to her was she looked at me and went, you're crazy. You want to give me five grand and this is an $8 million property. I'm like, Mrs. Tromley, I'm going to be your personal bank. You let me create a securities offering out of this. You let me go out to my investor group. If they like the project or where I see it's going on future development, they'll invest. Then I can pay you your $8 million, but this is what I need. I need time to create, we created a securities offering only eligible to accredited uh, investors. And we went out to the marketplace. Our first closing in 2010 on September 28th was $3.8 million. Wow. That's not their usually first offering. That's usually like second, third offering to raise that type of capital and, and just to see that level of interest. You literally had a vision for what this piece of land was going to do. Let's talk about this piece of land for a second, right? You obviously went to her and said, hey, I could do this. What was your points of view? How would you were able to turn her around? Because she may have had other offers and whatnot. How did you do that? First of all, uh, it's about, I hate talking about myself, but it's my track. I've lent to probably every builder, developer in Alberta, in Western Canada, through the private lending corporation I used to work for. So she knew who I was. She knew my track record. Honestly, no, a lot of people, just the average person off the street can't go, I've got five grand, I want to buy your $8 million property. Let me have it for two years. It doesn't work that way doesn't work that way in any business. That particular piece of property was zoned, was, the land use was about 65 four-acre lots. That would have been a build-out of approximately $60 million. At $8 million, there was enough of uh, equity within the deal that it made sense for me and my investment group. I don't stop there. I look at the best and highest use of what that property could have brought to our group. So our whole goal is about preservation of capital and building wealth. My goal to get into to this is to ensure that we buy land or pre-development land at a price that isn't underwater and that's ensure that their capital is preserved upon selling that land if we can't achieve our best and highest uses. That piece of land now, after we put a concept plan on it, is about 650 units. So we've gone from about 65, about a thousand percent increase in terms of density, which includes multifamily, city lots, and some and some state lots. That project has been submitted, and we will get uh, our application heard early next year. That was a 250-acre parcel, and I added another 424 acres to it. And now we're looking at about 12, 1,364 units and 105,000 square feet of commercial at a minimum, starting from my $5,000 investment. We're excited. Our investors are excited. And it's been, it's a lot of work, but at, at the same point, this model allows for sharing in the risk and reward. We have an investor group. Some people put in 25,000, some people put in a million, some people put in 500,000, whatever their risk threshold was that they checked off on their investor form, their KYCs, that's what they invested. So here we are today, we're the largest landholder between Calgary and Calgary, two municipalities that border each other with a 12 kilometer distance. Uh, between each other and we own all the land on the north side of Calgary and Cochrane is one of the fastest growing cities in the world because of where it's located the tech industries that want to go there so we're in a great position 
And, and there's a lack, there's a scarcity of a residential lots in that area in the Northwest quadrant, as I mentioned. Right. So I saw an opportunity. I saw what, what the current value is, simply put, saw what the current value is, just did a little research. I just don't throw darts on a board. We engage a planner, a municipal planner. We do what's called a pre-purchase briefing book from the municipal planner. That tells us what our what the current policy and the land uses for that property and what the best and highest use would be mm-hmm. and all the constraints that are on that property. I looked at it and I said, wow, this just makes a lot of sense. If we have no debt on our property, we create the proper reserve uh, to run. So there's never any cash calls. So that was an $8 million purchase. We raised $14.5 million for legal, conceptual, engineering, bio-impact assessment, historical resources. All these different things need to be done. But we ensure that we do that pre-purchase briefing book to make sure that's the right property that we're going to purchase. That's kind of how it works. It sounds really simple, Peter, but I got to tell you, it was a lot of work as I'm buying land. I'm also creating my website. I'm creating my corporation. I'm creating our brand. I'm adding people. And then I got to go out and raise capital. It's it was a classic. A- like you, you built this thing, right? Like you built this thing off a vision, off experience. And, and, and that speaks lots of volumes, right? Neem? Because it's, you touch on something that's very critical for every entrepreneur, for every investor is credibility, is integrity. You came with a lot of that. And that's one of the hardest assets to build. You had that in your back pocket and people knew who you were. People trusted you and, and still continue to trust you, of course. And that's what really gave your ability to buy this first piece of land, which now is making you know, a, a really big deal. Let me ask you this. Like when people look at land development, not the already zoned type of development, not like the building, as you say, not the capital uplift, but in terms of raw land, highest and best use of density, because people all around the world, especially depending where they are around the world, would think that land development or land plays are very risky, right? So share with us that, because like you say, one of the core elements of your organization is really about preservation of safety of that capital and then also wealth creation. So tell us about the safety of that capital. What is the risk and how do you mitigate some of those risks? And uh, how do you put that in place as part of your organization as you grow? Because that, that's the biggest thing. Mitigation of risk, the biggest thing when I go into purchase and bet a piece of raw land. Actually buying a, a property with a big building on it is probably way more riskier than buying raw land with future entitlements on it. Um, it, it, it that's a vertical build versus a horizontal build, which I'm involved in. Yeah. So I make sure that I, I purchase the right property at the right price, that it's not underwater, that there's value there, but what's the future value? So uh, for instance, uh, Glendale Manor Inc., my first property, just right across the street, hypothetically speaking, there's different zoning. There's a a larger area structure plan zoning, which governs what the land use will be. Uh, Right across the street, that land use could be agricultural land, where my land use could be cluster residential land across the street. If you wanna raise a bunch of cows and horses and run your dogs, that's what that land use is for you're never gonna see any upside uh, for economic value. The land that I purchased was zoned for minor business corridor and cluster residential. So I focused on that land and I focused on the upside and the better and the higher use of that land. So the other mitigating factors is if I went into this and bought this land myself, I could probably only do one project. Instead, we have 450 investors that own the corporation that are registered on title 
I'm only one part of it. I've created a model that there's a lot of shoulder checks. All of our securities offerings are vetted and created by Borden Loudner Survey, one of the largest legal firms in the world. So we outsource that. We outsource our finance or CA firm does all of that work. Uh, Alliance Trust holds all of our paper. So we don't hold only all of that. We use a third party municipal planner. So the integrity of what we buy and what we get our investors involved in has always been vetted by multiple third party groups that say that project makes sense. That's how I mitigate it. I don't have all the right answers all the time, Peter, but when you have group think and when you have a bunch of sophisticated people in the real estate world saying that's a grand slam, it's pretty easy for me to make a decision and pull the trigger. That's just one part of it. That's the initial part. Then you have to go out and, hey, I've got to convince investors who are looking for, it's an equity deal. You get to own part of a whole of a large real estate development. They love that concept. They love being on title. They love having the tax benefit of having a corporate dividend payout when we do exit our projects. So then you have to go out and market that. And that's where I did that for a very short period of time in, in Canada, but the, the exempt market rules changed. And I decided, you know what, uh, these are difficult times to work under this new Alberta Securities Commission mandate. So we still work under it, but we work under accredited investor rules. And we just decided to go to, to Tokyo, Japan. There's more people living in Tokyo than all of Canada. So for me, that just made a lot of sense where I could go to a place where there's this large investor group, educate them about Canada, Alberta, Calgary, what we have to offer and say, hey, you know that train station you get on every day? I own a piece of land where there's going to be a new train station. You know, would you like to be a part of it? This is the upside. And lo and behold, we have close to 2,000 investors or 2,500 investors now in Japan. And we started six years ago in Japan. And everything is mitigated from purchasing the land to involving third-party groups that look at it. Our investors every day mitigate our investment. They ask tough questions and they, they say, what about this? What about that? They make us better all the time. And that's really cool. It helps me be a better CEO. It helps me be a better land guy. So it's really cool. Dean, you just blown my mind. And when I say that, it's like it's... You, you really are relatable. And for those who don't see Dean, right, that just listening to us, Dean is not Japanese. He is the furthest thing from Japanese. Dean, do you speak any Japanese? Uh, I can say biru, and that's about it. So Asahi that's Super so, Dry is my favorite beer. <laughs> that's about it. And, and he was able to get that type of traction. I want to drill deeper on that because even though you don't speak the language, you're not from there. A lot of people, even including me, have that notion, hey, is it really hard to work with the Japanese in terms of culture and everything else like that? So walk us through how the, the brand building process was. You shared a little bit of that about the train station where you become relatable or the basis of educating about Calgary, Alberta, Canada. So walk us through with this brand building. You have this piece of land. How did you brand build Urban Star? How did you build the organization so it is now ripe? for the international um, movement. I think with any venture, relationship building is where it all starts. Getting on the ground, you have to go out there, shake hands, greet people. Japan is a very close society. They're very open and gracious and hospitable. But in terms of business, many times they're very closed. They want to know who you are and your background. So I had a very unique opportunity that I had a good friend who was married to one of the 
royal families down the lineage quite a bit. And the lady was very kind to walk me around Tokyo and introduce me to a bunch of individuals who she thought may be interested. Just because she introduced me didn't mean they invest. But she opened the door for me and she vouched for me. And that was very important in the Japanese culture and the business environment. At that point, uh, really, it was my last trip in March was my 85th trip to Tokyo and to Osaka. And I traveled up and down Japan and had an amazing time. I love the bullet trains. I love McDonald's in Japan because it's very different than here. I love the food there, the people. But really, it's about getting out there, presenting getting in front of people, shaking hands. We did a wine event in Tokyo where we had 400 people come out. We went out there, it's called Heavenly Vines. We didn't promote Urban Star at all. We just put on a function and we promoted Canadian wines from the Okanagan, from Ontario, the ice wines. People don't know oh, Canada has great wines. We start talking about Canada and tasting different wines. You start building your brand, your Urban Star brand. Everybody's, when's the presentation coming? Well, it's not. We wanted to teach you a little bit about Canada first, about BC, what a great province it is, what a great province Ontario is, the diversity that's out there. And slowly but surely, I, I've spoken at the Tokyo America Club, the Tokyo Chamber of Commerce, the Canadian uh, Embassy. The first, where it all starts, is not Urban Star. It all starts with Alberta, Calgary, surrounding areas, and why does investment for development make sense in those areas? Wow. Then... Then the onus comes on us. Why you? There's these other big companies out there. I have a unique advantage in that I was a private lender in Calgary and Alberta and Western Canada. Deals come to me that never go, that hit, never hit the market. I get them first. I vet them. I look at them. I see if they make sense. That's the advantage we had. The branding, uh, it took some time. We're here. Now that COVID happened, it, Peter, it really positively changed how we do business in Japan. Whereas before it was always meet and greets, presentations. We now do podcasts. We now do Zoom calls. We've now gone from traditional uh, sub-agreements being signed on a piece of paper to PandaDoc, to DocuSign. We're creating a new website that will, a presentation will be there that they can view. They can move over to our secured site where they can see a data room of all the costs associated with it. They can then go to over to DocuSign and from seeing our presentation to seeing all the data behind our land projects, all the term sheets, sub-agreements that are regulated by the Alberta Securities Commission to immediately investing with us without ever meeting us. So we've really morphed from meeting and greeting. COVID's been interesting and reshaped our business on how right. we go about doing things. But uh, the branding was, was fun. It was challenging, but I had a great time going out there. I'm like a politician in a good way, knocking on doors, getting people to meet me, getting to understand how we go about buying our land, syndicating our land, the upside of it. When we're in Japan, we talk about the foreign exchange opportunity. Yeah. A lot of the investors in Japan had a 30% upside discount on investing with, with us because the Japanese yen was so strong. So mm. it made a lot of sense. Then you start talking about inheritance tax in Japan. It's at 90%. It makes a lot of sense. We, we talk about a lot of other things than just Urban Star, our land holdings. What are the other things that make sense in their life? Diversity of their portfolio from traditional publicly traded corps uh, on the NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange to alternative types of investments where you actually own the project. You own the land. 
you own the upside in the corporation. And a lot of people, that type of opportunity is not available to them in Japan. And they're looking for opportunities outside of Japan in a politically stable country like Canada, also a physically stable country. <laughs> they, they often ask, what about natural disasters? Do you have earthquakes? Do you have tsunamis? And stuff? I'm like, no, we have really cold weather in Canada and we're really boring. And uh, they love that. They love that we're a boring country. So that's about it. The branding is, was a big part of it, but it was about my background, the people behind the company, the people that introduced me to, to them. And then from there, they make the decision as to whether to invest with us. Or- that's incredible. You've put in the work and you've been able to build that brand by not just speaking about your brand, but also about the education, about the market, about the people, your significant advantages, how you were able to do that. And your experience. So that means a tremendous amount, Dean. But did you fly over there all the time? How did you build the team built who you are today? Because we all know that it, you as a CEO, you're not one pounding bricks. You're not the person who's digging holes. You're not the person necessarily always raising capital either. So you've built an organization, right? That in the last 10 years, you walk us through some of those things that the hurdle points that you had to overcome or some of the milestones that you had to do in terms of building a team, Tokyo, perhaps even in, in the local jurisdiction. How did this all come about? And can you give us some timeline there? So, so Peter, I don't know who, if everyone out, anyone out there is a business owner. Uh, when you start a company, you are a hole digger. Okay? You, you do dig, everything. You dig every hole. You do everything. You pound the ground. So my last trip was my 85th trip to Japan. So I would be introduced to people. We put great teams together, our president. Arata Matsushita-san worked on Wall Street as well. He went to Michigan State. He loves the Wolverines. He went to school in Orange County. He was a baseball player. So it's about meeting people on the ground and finding like-minded people that with the same value system that you want to work with. And so I'm an organizational development specialist as well. I have a designation in human resources. So for me, it was really easy to put an organization together structurally. However, the people are what make the company. And so I looked at our brand and what do we want to do? We want to preserve people's capital and build wealth. And there's a lot of people surprising the Peter that like that money. Hey, just don't lose my money. Uh, I hear that all the time. And I go, okay, take a look at this offering. Mm-hmm. These are our costs. This is what we think the upside is. Hey, you could lose part of all your money. We never know what's going to happen. And that's one of the disclosures we have to make with the Alberta Securities Commission because we're a private issuer. Yes, But it's no different than any mutual fund or any seg fund that anybody invests in. It was a lot of hard work. Like I said, now I'll travel to Japan probably once a quarter versus once every I didn't see my children a lot growing up the last six years, but I spent a lot of quality time with them and I still do. But you know what? I think we've built something really special. Japanese are very accommodating and very open once they get to know you. And uh, so after a while, it's okay. This is Dean's son. And I like seeing my name spelled in Kanji. It's really cool. And I love going to Japan. So it's not all, it wasn't work for me, Peter. It mm-hmm. was my passion and I love doing it. And I love talking about real estate. We try to educate people versus sell to people. And our website, people are like, oh, your website's got too much on it. It's got this. I go, no, I wanted our website to be educational. I wanted people to get on there and understand the land life cycle how land goes from raw land, conceptually rezoned to actual shovels in the ground. Where does the value uptake happen? So we need to teach people about how that happens. It pretty much happens in principle the same way all around the world. 
And so once our investors understood the process, they make the decision to invest or not. So they were able to invest with that type of information. That's what they wanted in terms of understanding. That's the information that they needed for them to move. That's great. You were able to fill that gap and teach them about something. And then you also gave them the matrix as to how evaluation went to also how investment went and where the risks and rewards are. And I think that's incredible, Dean. You really understand the investment mentality and, and not losing capital. Kudos to that. Thank you. And not only that, I'm manda- mandated by uh, no Alberta Securities Law to do that as well. I've created our offerings, our private issuers this way, is to, hey, we have a unit that is registered or a mortgage that's registered on land that you own, that you're the mortgagee. We have the corp that you're invested in. So you're protected by all of Alberta's business laws. I have corporate governances in place for full disclosure, for financial reporting. You have all your class uh, share rights, class holder rights. On the other side, you have all these land ownership rights as well. We we did a hybrid model for investors to invest in. And why did I do it that way? Because I thought it was the best way to protect the investor if anything did go wrong, because inevitably things may go wrong. I couldn't have predicted COVID. I'm sorry, Peter. I couldn't have done that. I wish I could have. You should have called. You should have called. Okay. But during that whole experience over the year and a half, Urban Star is still standing. All our projects are a go. And I'm pretty proud of that, that we created a model. And our investors in Japan, Mm -hmm. they're like excited that the fact that we're their last standing investment. All the other ones have lost X amount of dollars and they're still registered on title with a group of people that they have ownership in of of the land. And that's exactly what your mandate was, the preservation of capital and wealth building. Dean, share with us this. You've been a land developer. You've been on the other side. What are your thoughts with low interest rates? What are your thoughts on the fundamental element, low interest rates? What is it like with population growth? What is it like in terms of some of the things that you look for when you're evaluating? This is the bonus bit, right? In closing, what are some of those things that when you look at a piece of land, what do you look for? What are the fast finger things that you'll do to evaluate on the surface level, a napkin presentation, something that would you know, appeal to you as a good piece of land. So Peter, I'm gonna to try to answer this question the best I can. I strictly deal with large tracts of raw land that are designated for future master plan communities. Yeah. That's what I focus on. I also do land assemblies within the city of Calgary that are focused, where we've got a green line initiative where we're basically building a large subway system in that's just been approved a $5.5 billion project. It's the largest infrastructure project, I believe, in Alberta's history, which is amazing. So when you talk about low interest for the, for me, interest rates are irrelevant because all of our projects are debt-free. We do not have a burn rate because it's an equity investment. Mm. So we raise all of our capital for future developments and we build in a component, a reserve fund to ensure that we can last five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 20 years. But for low interest for the average person, it's a double-edged sword. Oh, I can get a mortgage at 1.85%. They've got their income at this level. I'm going to get an $800,000 house versus what they can really afford, which is, which is a $600,000 house. They move into that house. They still have all those other bills that are piling up. That low interest rate one day within two, three, depending on what rate they've got, a variable, an open or a closed mortgage will end. Interest mm-hmm. rates will change. So uh, people get ahead of themselves in terms of looking at that low interest rate and not taking all their other expenses into account. 
They're just looking at the low interest rate versus their lifestyle that they want to maintain. And so I think it's great for, for people who are getting into the market and afford to buy a home, take into account their overall expenses versus the, the income that they bring into their family household. But for Calgary, like I said, we have had a boom here in real estate over the last eight months. Houses go on, they're getting multiple bids, bid over asking price. So it's been a boom and it's great. And what it'll do is spark new housing for single family homes, multifamily homes, condo development in Calgary and the surrounding area. And as oil goes up, there'll be even a greater demand. So I caution everybody in terms of inflation and balancing out the expenses that you have, that you carry as a family household. Take it all into account when you're buying a home and utilizing the low interest rates. Don't over leverage. That's fantastic. So Dean, I know I said in closing, I wanted to wrap up, but you brought up something else that I really want to bring up. And I think it's really important is what do you look for? Can you share with us one, two, or three things that on the flip side, as an investor, when they're looking to make an investment, you know, evaluate risk from you making an investment, right? Making an investment in an issue like yourself or any other investment. Is there any red flags or things that they should be looking for? And I think that's a very big one for investors all around the world. I've got the simplest model out there for you. You make money when you buy real estate or when you buy a property, not when you sell it. So one of the biggest ways to evaluate a piece of property is, can I build that home? I'm going to use a single family home as a proxy. Yes. Take into account land values out there and the cost of building that residential unit. If you can build that house for less than what that house is currently listed at, it's called being underwater. I always look at a piece of property and say, what's the cost of land? What would it cost me to build a 2,000 square foot house? If the metrics don't work, if it costs me more to build that house than what it's listed at, I'm all over that house because there's tons of value there. So that's how I go about valuating property. Wow. That is actually incredibly powerful. Simple, but incredibly powerful. Dean, it's, it's a pleasure having you here and, and sharing your wisdom, how you built a company. 10 years to now in the future doing a billion dollar with one of the largest developers in Canada. So congratulations, Lane. Thank you tremendously for being on the show today, Dean. Thank you, Peter. And thank you for everyone listening. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. So in closing, guys, real estate has changed my life. It's allowed me the financial freedom, the choices to work from wherever I want, working with investors and operators like Dean around the world. We're here, Dean, myself, here to provide the insights, education, and connecting around the world of investors and entrepreneurs. So guys, go out there and make it happen. Dean has, he's proven it. You can do it. $5,000. I am just in awe. So congratulations once again, Dean. Guys, have a great day and on to the next podcast.